In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. If you're not already there from the scripture reading, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. That's where we're going to be working today. And before we get started, let's pray one more time. Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit would be close to us right now because we're opening your word and that is a special and sacred thing because you have something to tell us today from your word. And so I pray that you would guide my thoughts and my words and that all of our hearts would be open to hear whatever it is that you want to speak to us today. Drive the forces of evil far away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A man by the name of Korah was a member of the tribe of Levi. And if you know anything about the tribe of Levi, the Levites were set aside for a special work. They were spiritual leaders in Israel. They were the ones who cared for the sanctuary. They were the, the, the pastors, the priests, the, the ministers of Israel. The rest of the community supported them through their tithes so that they could dedicate full-time to that ministry. That's where the whole concept of, of tithe really came into its own. Aaron and his descendants were also Levites, but they were the ones that were ordained to the priesthood in particular. Not all Levites were priests. Only Aaron and his sons and his descendants were priests. And so the Levites were separated somewhat. Korah was a Levite, but he was not a priest. Even though he wasn't one of Aaron's sons, and therefore not a priest, he was a Levite, and the Levites were a special people among a special people already. Korah had two friends, though. Leaders in the tribe of Reuben, their names were Dathan and Abiram. They were not Levites. So they were civil leaders. They were not religious leaders. Numbers 16.1 says that the three of them became insolent and rose up against Moses. They recruited 250 other well-known community leaders to join them in an attempted coup against Moses and Aaron. And this group of religious and civil leaders confronted Moses. In verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? 
When you read the story in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 16, from our point of view, the situation seems fairly absurd. We know very well that Moses and Aaron were chosen by God as their designated, as his designated leaders. So how could anyone possibly think that they should lead Israel instead? But we're far from the situation, right? It's easy for us to look back. Hindsight is 2020, right? Try to imagine the circumstances that had that brought them to this place, and you'll quickly and easily see how, how readily this can happen. The Israelites were in a difficult life situation. They were living in tents in the desert. Food and water was scarce. They were afraid, uncomfortable, discontent, spiritually immature. And someone starts to mutter to his neighbor. And someone else agreed. And then finally someone says, you know, aren't we all God's chosen people? Aren't we all holy too? What makes Moses and Aaron think that they have the right to lead? You or I could do just as well, maybe better. After all, just look at what Aaron did. After all, just look at what Moses failed to do. Right? Gossip. And so it goes. It seems that the perpetrators in this story actually believed that God approved of what they were saying and doing. It seems they actually thought that Moses and Aaron were proud, egotistical, power-hungry dictators. And so when Moses was blindsided by this accusation from this mob that had gathered, he did what we so often see Moses doing. He fell on his face in prayer. And in verse 4, it says, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Face down. <laughs> now, that's all fine and good for Moses, you know. But really, is that the way to confront a mob? When someone accuses you the way that they accused Moses, should you fall on your face in front of them? Of course not. I mean, right? You, you stand up for your rights. You fight for your dignity. You defend your reputation. Right? Isn't that what Moses should have done? Is that what we should do? It's not, is it? When God's true people are confronted by cruelty and false accusations and evil people intent on bringing them down, the very best place for God's people is flat on their faces, or at least on your knees, before the Lord. Moses fell on his face in prayer, and when he got up, he arose with instructions from the Lord. He knew what to do. That's what falling on his face got him. It got him instructions for how to proceed. Would he have received those instructions by defending his reputation or fighting for his rights? No, I don't think so. He received his instructions in prayer. 
he was able to stand because he fell on his face. And this is what Moses said to the people. Verse 5. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man who he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You, Levites, have gone too far. How did they go too far? Verse 8, Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the, the community and to minister to them? He has brought you and all of your fellow Levites near to himself. But now you are trying to get the priesthood too. Doesn't that sound remarkably Luciferish? The Levites had already been set apart in a highly exalted position, but they wanted more. They wanted to be priests. The next morning, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all of the followers, they came out of their tents and they filled their incensers, 253, if we have the literal numbers there. They came out of their tents, they filled their censers with incense and coals from the altar and stood beside Moses and Aaron at the door of the meeting of the sanctuary, the tent of meeting or the sanctuary. Question. Why did God instruct them to bring censers and to burn incense? It was the job of the priests, correct? What does incense represent in the Bible? Prayer. Prayer. How do we know that? Well, the Bible says so. Take, for instance, Luke 1, 9 and 10. Story, Zechariah. Zechariah was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, so there's just one hint. One of the main functions of the priest, by the way, was to burn incense. All right. Prayer mixed with incense. The, the, the literal meaning, by the way, if, you're, if you ever read it in the Hebrew, of the sacrifice is to turn into smoke. That's what it says. It's, it's to turn into smoke. So the smoke arising from the altar represented Christ's sacrifice, the altar, mixed with the prayers of his people going up before God, right? That's the whole thing. Uh, Revelation 8, 3 has a, another interesting thing about incense. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with, does anybody remember? the prayers of the saints, okay? The prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. When God instructed those Levites in rebellion against Moses to offer incense in their censers, he was telling them to pray. 
he was telling them to call upon God to sort this out. They were calling upon God to judge between them. But you see that? Verse 19 says that the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The entire assembly was the entire nation of Israel, okay? Not just the 250, but the entire nation of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. Now everybody say, whoa, right? Evidently, the entire assembly, the whole nation of Israel was siding with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram against Moses and Aaron, God's chosen leaders. So what did Moses and Aaron do in response to God's command? God says, step aside, move out of the way so that I can destroy them. Did they do it? Did they step aside and allow God to destroy the people? No. They actually disobeyed a direct order from God to step aside. And what did they do instead? Verse 22, but Moses and Aaron fell face down. They fell face down and cried out, Oh God, God of the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Now think about that. Was there just one man sinning? There were at least 250 and many more, as the story goes on to tell. But note what God does. Does God get angry with Moses and Aaron for disobeying him? No. God responded to Moses' prayer. God, when you think about it, God actually submitted to Moses. God says, step aside so I can destroy them. Moses says, no, and God says, okay. I even have the suspicion that God was depending on Moses to call upon his mercy. Why else would God have told him to move? <laughs> Did God need Aaron and Moses to move to destroy the people? Of course not. He told them for a reason. What else could it be than God planned for Moses and Aaron to stop him? God even states explicitly that he works this way. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Listen to this. I looked... For a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap in behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all that they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Do you sense what this means? Even though God in his justice must eventually destroy the wicked, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. So he is looking for any possible reason to give them another chance. And the reason that God needs comes in the form of his people begging for the lives of other people. 
if God can find someone to stand in the gap, someone to plead for the wicked, God is temporarily enabled to postpone judgment. And he leaps at the opportunity not to destroy. That's why when I read the story of Abraham, <laughs> and Abraham is bargaining God down, I sometimes wonder if God wished Abraham hadn't stopped when he did. Well, that day, with Moses and Aaron, God found a man to stand in the gap. When Moses fell on his face and pleaded for the wicked, God was able, we might even say God was allowed, to give the majority of the assembly another chance. Verse 23, then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So Moses stood up and went over to where Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were standing outside of their tents, and all of the elders followed him. And then Moses warned the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram so that they would not be swept away with them. And the people, wisely, sensing judgment, moved. Verse 28. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. Evidently, the people had convinced themselves that, that uh, Moses and Aaron had commandeered for themselves these positions of honor. If, Moses goes on, if these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them and everything else that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated who with contempt? Who does it say? The Lord with contempt. Were they attempting a, a coup against God? Evidently, God thought so. This story should be a warning to us. God's people, God's leaders, are not perfect people. Far, far from it. But nonetheless, the way that we treat or we speak about God's leaders is important because God sees that as reflecting directly upon him. Therefore, David even when confronted with pure evil in Saul, refused to speak or act against him. As soon as Moses finished speaking, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, their families, everything they owned, and then closed up again. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And note that it doesn't say the 250 men that were following Korah. It specifies the 250 men who were offering incense, which represents prayer, right? The 250 men who were praying unsanctified prayers. 
God knows the hearts of even those who pray. Prayer in and of itself is not what God responds to. Anybody can pray. And some people do a lot, you know, they have all sorts of praying things. It's not prayer that God responds to. It's the heart of the one who's praying that God is able to respond to. So all of the assembly who had been given another chance, who had been spared the judgment of God that day, they all went back to their tents to think about it, to sleep on it about what they had seen that day. But despite everything that they had seen, it seems that their hearts were unchanged. So we can see that God was not making empty threats when he told Moses and Aaron to move aside so he could destroy the people. God knew their hearts, but he didn't postpone judgment on them based on their hearts (laughs) because they were unchanged. He postponed judgment based on Moses' plea which God responds to dramatically when we call on his mercy. And that's what Moses had done. So all of these people who had received this reprieve of grace, a second chance, they had all night to think about the situation, to pray about the situation, and to change their hearts, change their minds about what they had seen. But to acknowledge that Moses had been right and Korah had been wrong would be to acknowledge that they had been wrong, that they had been deceived, and nobody likes to acknowledge that they have been deceived. It's a difficult thing to admit you've been deceived because our pride does not want to admit that we were wrong. Satan's forces were active in the tents of Israel that night. Convincing people that they hadn't actually seen what they thought they had seen. Something else must have been going on with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and these 250 leaders. And so somehow they managed to convince themselves of a conspiracy that Moses and Aaron had somehow done some kind of a trick which made them even more ineligible for the positions of leadership that they were in. Verse 41 says, The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron and said, You have killed the Lord's people. I mean, I just shake my head. Seriously? Moses made the ground open up? Moses brought fire down from heaven? If that's true, the people ought to be a lot more afraid of Moses and Aaron than they seem to be. You see, God was right in the judgment that he had made the day before when he told Moses and Aaron to move away so he could destroy the wicked. God was not going off half-cocked. He wasn't making a mistake. He knew what he was doing, but he responded to the heart of Moses because God loved his people even more than Moses did. And so God was glad to give them another chance. But eventually, eventually, our choices meet with their ends. Verse 42, But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. So trouble was brewing. 
Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And what did these faithful shepherds of God do again? They stepped in front of God. They fell on their faces, and they stepped in front of God in defense of an unworthy people. They stood in the gap. There's a word for this kind of action. You know what it is? Intercession. The word is intercession. Moses, though, understood that something was already happening. For the sake of the rest of the people, God in his wisdom and love had to put a stop to the spiritual cancer that was growing in the community. He loved his people too much to allow them to all be destroyed by a wicked few. So, like a master surgeon, he began to carve out the destructive disease from his beloved people by sending a plague among them. And it began at the edge of the crowd, and it began to sweep through. Verse 46, Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it, along with fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Did you hear that? What did he ask them to do? Make atonement for them. Now, we usually equate atonement with the sacrifice of Jesus mixed with our repentance, right? Jesus' sacrifice and our repentance, put those things together and there's atonement. But here we see another facet of atonement that goes beyond repentance. This is incredible. The sacrifice of Jesus mixed with the prayers of his faithful people, evidently, has atoning power. Intercessory prayer by the righteous for the unrighteous has atoning power that directly impacts even those who are living in direct rebellion against God. So Aaron, who is more than 80 years old, leaps to his feet, runs into the sanctuary, grabs his censer, incense, and coals from the altar, and at a full sprint, runs into the crowd. And people are falling like flies around him from the plague. Aaron is not afraid, because he's right with God. And so Moses flat on his face, interceding for the people, standing in the gap in front of the sanctuary. Aaron runs directly into the plague, dodging bodies until he catches up with the front of the plague, the wave that is sweeping through the crowd. And as he catches up, he passes it, turns around, holds up his censer, and he stands between the living and the dead, and the plague stops. That, my friends, is a picture of intercessory prayer in action. There is atoning power in your prayers for other people. 
even those who are in direct rebellion against God. Now, I don't want to make God seem like the bad guy, eager to destroy, and Moses and Aaron seem like the merciful good guys. Do you think God destroyed randomly that day? You won't convince me of that. Just like a, a surgeon carefully cuts around a dangerous disease in the body, I believe God knew precisely what he was doing when he operated on the body of Israel that day. He didn't act in anger the way that we understand anger. Ultimately, in this terrible judgment, God was acting in mercy. I believe that he propelled 80-year-old Aaron to stop exactly where he needed him to stop. To stand between the living and the dead. Prayer is not us against God. Intercession is the ultimate in cooperation between us and God. God is looking for men and women to stand in the gap, to stand between the living and the dead. Do you ever wonder what you can do to help save those you love? even when they're living in direct rebellion against God, as a gift from God, you have the power to stand between the living and the dead. Me? I have that kind of power? Yeah. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are Moses and Aaron. Your prayers are incense. And when combined with the sacrifice of Jesus in the center of your heart, your prayers have the power to move Almighty God as He in turn moves in you. Intercession is the ultimate in cooperation with God. When you are confronted by your enemies or even your loved ones who are enemies of the truth, your duty as a priest, is never to defend yourself, never to stand up for your rights. Your duty is to fall flat on your face, as it were, and intercede for that person before God. In effect, standing between the living and the dead. When confronted by evil or ignorance or people who accuse you wrongly or your, and your reaction is to fight, instead... Grab the censer of your heart, fill it with the incense of Jesus' sacrifice, mix in your prayers with that sweet smell, and stand between them and judgment. It's the ultimate in Christ-likeness, because that's exactly what Jesus, our intercessor, is doing in his cooperation with the Father for our salvation. When you feel desperate because your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister or your mother or your father or your friend or your neighbor, whoever it might be, will not yield to the saving grace of Jesus as a royal priest, you are not helpless. Let your heart, not just your words, let your heart fall on your face and stand between the living and the dead. And God, who's even more anxious than you are for any reason at all to give them more time, will give it to them. The primary work of a priest is intercession. The ultimate way of cooperating with God in the work of redemption. He wants your heart to ache with his for the lives of his people. You are a royal priesthood. And prayer is your. Amen.
Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.